0: Hello and welcome to Linkage, The podcast that links people to government. I am your host, Lucinda Rosen, and this week we are tackling the legislative branch of government in the upcoming hour. We will talk about Article One of the Constitution and interpret what it says about the legislative branch. We will talk about the significant differences between the House and the Senate with regards to elections, representation, and characteristics, and we will follow a piece of legislation. ...as it moves through both houses to become a law. All accompanied with some fabulous puns. Just kidding, I know you hate puns, but I'm going to do them anyway. Next up on this hour of linkage, stay with us. Theme music. (laughs) And now, it's time to analyze Article 1 of the Constitution. Being the first article in the Constitution is as significant as it is an indicator... ...that the legislative branch of government was considered... ...the most powerful branch of government by the framers of the Constitution... Although this is just my speculation, I do have some facts backed up. We know that this is because they are passionately opposed to giving much power to single executive. After rebelling against the British monarchy, we were pretty much like, we don't want to put one person in charge of our country because they're inevitably going to become corrupt monsters. And until the principle of judicial review was established by Marbury versus Madison with the Marshall Court and all of that, the judicial branch of government held very little respected power. Actually, they worked in a basement, so that was kind of a diss on them. Uh, they were kind of an afterthought in the Constitution. So the legislative branch had the perfect appearance of being connected to the people for the purpose of obtaining popular sovereignty from them. It was also the most important and the most powerful early on. Okay, so popular sovereignty is the constitutional principle of the the governed, which conveys authority on the government from the people, allowing it to govern with power from that authority. It basically ensures that the people won't rebel against the government because we give them the permission to enact laws to govern us. Authority is extremely important in a government because a government without authority is kind of like a dictatorship because the people didn't give their consent to be governed. Although one can consider not rebelling, giving consent, the lines between authority and legitimacy are extremely blurry. Um, However, actually, the legislative branch was far from being connected to the people, as we assume, as white male landowners were obviously the only ones who could vote, and even they were only able to directly elect members of the House of Representatives, as the Senate was elected by state lawmakers. This specific design was intentionally created by the elitist, um, the elite framers to receive popular sovereignty from the people while still remaining safe, away from the control of the ignorant masses. Because, obviously, the interests of the ignorant masses were far different from the mem- the interests of the elitist founders. If you want to go into this topic further, you can read the Economic Interpretation of the Constitution by Charles Beard. While the first legislative branch was far from the ideal of democracy, it still created the basis for the improved representation of citizens of the United States that we have in government today. So it's kind of like, yay us, but also at the same time, eh? Now, let's get down to the specifics of the legislative branch as outlined in the Constitution. So I kind of feel like members of society today are like scared of reading the constitution because it's seen as being this extremely complex legal document but it's actually written in decently clear terms and the only confusing parts are just very specific logistics that aren't actually that important to our country like when congress meets every year or things like that whereas the main idea is if you read it you can generally get it out. I feel like people overestimate how complex the Constitution is. So if you actually get a copy from the library or online, you may find that it is not actually as complex as you read, as you anticipated. Article, but I'm going to go through it. So education right here, if you want to listen to me for an hour. Article 1, Section 1 states that, quote, "...all legislative powers herein, granted, shall be vested in a Congress of the United States." which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. This is just introduction, but now you know that there are to be two houses with the sole power to legislate or create laws for the new country. Section 2 deals with the specifics of the House of Representatives. This seems slightly surprising because the House of Representatives is generally considered inferior to the Senate. It may precede the Senate as a nod to the power of the people, or maybe not, I am just randomly speculating, but that is how I interpreted it. According to the Constitution, to be a member of the House of Representatives, you must be 25 years old, and seven years, a citizen of the United States, and an inhabitant, now considered a legal resident, of the state you are running for an election. Obviously, someone from Texas can't run and be elected as in the House of Representatives for the state of Vermont, because... They are not a legal resident of Vermont. But also, I would be skeptical of people in Vermont electing a Texan because they're a little bit regionally different. Also, the 25 years age limit is an interesting note because Ocasio-Cortez, I skipped her first name, which is Alexandria, I believe, um, also referred to AOC in 99% of news organizations who are fixated on her, um, was actually... I think the youngest member of the House of Representatives in history, I'm unsure, but I think definitely one of the youngest, and is actually not old enough to be a member of the Senate, although I see that in her future, because she is the center of many political news stories today. Um, so, elections for the House of Representatives are to be every two years, and that makes them the most in touch with the electorate. And if you remember the House of Representatives, in a competitive district, you are particularly constantly running for re-election, which is insane, because you get elected, and then two years later, you have to run again. So you're constantly running. And that can make it hard to be productive in the House of Representatives, but it does make sure that members of the House of Representatives hold true to the values of their constituents, But at the same time, they're constantly raising funds and sidetracked by election things, so it makes it hard for them to get things done. So it's really how you view government. Should government be 100% beholden to the people, or should we allow them some leeway so that they can do things which may not all the time be the same as our interests? It's a blurry line between... um, a delegate and like a non-delegate there's a name for this i'm blanking this is bad moving on now comes the fun part of deciding how many representatives each state is allowed the number of representatives per state was to be apportioned was to be proportionate to the population of each state within the union oh my god my voice is dead because i just ran a track meet and it was rough i'm gonna drink some water mm. excuse me elections for the house of representatives are to be every two years making it the most in touch with the will of the electorate i discussed this previously the number of representatives per state was to be proportionate to the population of each state within the union the constitution says that the number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000. However, as the population of the United States increased substantially from its founding, it has become impossible to continue this standard of representation. So Permanent Apportion Act of 1929 hmm, capped the number of representatives at 435. So we discussed this in our Gov class earlier, how this does not follow the... Framers' intention of having one delegate for every 30,000 people, but at the same time, it would be impossible to follow that standard because, like, all of the members of the House of Representatives wouldn't even fit in the same room as each other, let alone be able to conduct a debate that didn't take two years long. So it's less feasible to have an accurate representation, but at the same time, one delegate represents far more than the framers intended of American citizens. To determine the number of citizens per state enabling the allotment of representatives, which is also known as apportionment in your APGov textbook, if you're taking APGov, which you should be, the Constitution instructs lawmakers to conduct a census. However, it was not as direct as counting all the people in each state. Of course not how could it be? Math. The number from which representatives were to be apportioned was to be determined by the number of all free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So this is a very important quote in the constitution, also known as the three-fifths compromise. So, by other persons, they're referring to African American slaves, which are never directly mentioned in the Constitution, maybe because they kind of wanted to preserve their legacy of not acknowledging slavery, but that was a serious problem. Um, And it acknowledges that they will count um, people bound to service for a term of years, which is also known as indentured servitude, which was generally white people who would go into indentured servitude to get passage to America, and then eventually they would be freed, and their children would not go into indentured servitude as slave children, children of slaves would become slaves themselves. So that was the difference. And they would be counted, but slaves were to be counted as three fifths of a person. This is called the Three-Fifths Compromise, made between the northern states and the southern states over counting of slaves. While the Constitution never specifically talks about slavery, it is inherent in this passage was to count slaves towards representation, which is clearly in the interest of southern states. So this was a big, important compromise to approve the Constitution because southern states were were afraid that if slaves weren't counted, northern states would have a majority in the House of Representatives, um, which would allow them to vote against preserving slavery, causing uh, destruction to what the South's economy was built on. So they included the Three-Fifths Compromise so that the South would have enough power to maintain slavery. Okay. The House of Representatives also chooses the Speaker of the House as its leader. Our current speaker is Nancy Pelosi, a Democratic representative from California. People have a lot of mixed feelings on Nancy Pelosi, as she is seen as a, to quote Mr. Z, divisive figure. I don't know how I feel about her because I was not politically aware when she was um, serving in the House of Representatives before she was previously speaker, I'm thinking, I'm probably sure, I'm not sure. I was seven, so don't blame me for not knowing this. Um, But she is the highest ranking elected female government official in history, which is kind of a big deal. Like, go her, even if you don't agree with her views, it's still a significant advancement for women who are constantly underrepresented in government. So the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has more control than their parallel in the Senate, Because the House is larger and requires more structure and leadership. For example, the Speaker of the House is third in line to the Presidency, while the President pro tempore of the Senate is fourth. The Speaker also has the power to control debate and make committee assignments, which gives the House of Representatives more structure. And who you assign to different committees can pretty much determine the agenda of the House of Representatives because committee votes are instrumental in determining what legislation eventually reaches the House of Rep- floor of the House of Representatives and is voted on because 99% of things die in committee. So who is elected as the head of the committee is instrumental in deciding what bills escape it. Okay, moving on. The House of Representatives also has the power of impeachment, which is very big. Right now, in the news, and also in history. Impeachment must say, start in the House of Representatives. But for a president to be removed from office, they must be convicted by a vote of two-thirds in the Senate. Preceding this vote, a trial is held in the Senate and presided over by the Chief Justice. I am going to take a quick water break, sorry. <clears throat> I find it interesting that impeachment is given to the House of Representatives in the Constitution because as the lower house, they were much more in tune with the will of the people. So if the people were really pushing for impeachment, it's easier for it to be initiated in the House and then could gain wide support to pressure the Senate to put the last nail in the impeachment coffin, so to speak. Um, But... Because it, they have to be convicted in the Senate, it's kind of a check to make it not a likely option because it is stre- extremely unlikely for a president to be removed from office, except if something is unanimously inexcusable. And it also means that the support of people is key to the success of impeachment because without public support, there will not be enough pressure on the representatives to follow through. So that is a big debate among Democrats now because they do have... They're building a case that could feasibly impeach Donald Trump, but without the wide support of the American people, it's probably not going to happen. And the wide support of American people may actually be more important than having like the legal means to execute it. So that is an important issue. Actually, recently I was reading, um, today a little bird told me that Nancy Pelosi was... Voicing up against efforts in the House to build um, impeachment for President Trump, considering calling it "quote a waste of their time" or not worth their time actually, which is her view because she thinks that it's going to be very divisive to the American people, which is probably really true. I find I think that if Donald Trump were to be impeached, I think that a lot of more Republican-leaning people or Trump supporters would, like, lose faith in the American legislative branch of government. Like, just based on their strong beliefs for President Trump, if he were to be removed from office, I think that they would discredit the value that they place on the House of Representatives because we live in very divisive times and we don't want to light the building on fire. Okay, I'm going to stick to the Constitution and limit my speculation. In Section 3 of the Constitution, the organization and qualification of being a senator are detailed. You must be 35 years old, 9 years a citizen of the United States, and an inhabitant of the state they are elected from. I am worried that I have the year wrong, because I thought 35 was the president. I think that the 9 years a citizen is actually, it's kind of interesting... Because at that time, there were some threats from more highly educated people who would be educated in foreign countries. We actually discussed this in our Gov class. And people would send people to be educated in foreign countries because they had higher education programs. And then they would come back, but they were not able to serve in government because they hadn't grown up in the U.S. and were not a resident for nine years. So that kind of was like a bind to keep representatives loyal to America, but also may have resulted in possibly less educated representatives. So another key aspect of the Senate was that many Americans are unaware of it, of that the senators were originally elected by the state legislatures, as I'd mentioned before, but I just want to go into this and clarify This made the upper house far more distant from the will of the people because you're electing state legislatures, which honestly I feel like are far more important than people give them credit for. They're the ones doing the crazy stuff, um, which then would elect senators, so the people were very disconnected from that process. This also makes the upper house more stable because the constitution ensures that only one-third of senators are up for re-election every two years, giving them six-year terms, which is a very long time. It provides senators with a longer opportunity to establish their influence in Congress and influence legislation. Obviously, If you're being elected every two years and you're constantly running for re-election, it's much harder to build personal relationships that you can utilize to pass legislation than if you're comfortably at home in the Senate for six years and have the power to build political capital and influence people's decisions and blackmail people, all that stuff that you see on TV shows. I know government doesn't really work that way, but it kind of does. It's debatable. Section 3 also says that the vice president shall preside over the Senate, but that he can't vote unless there is a 50-50 tie. So I speculated that because of the need to override a filibuster, a 50-50 tie would not be very common, even though the Senate is extremely polarized. But actually, the Constitution says unless Congress is equally divided... Sorry, this is another topic. I will get back to that later. Which is interesting because, obviously, the country was still growing and they didn't know how many senators there would actually be, so they said equally divided instead of a 50-50 split, which I said. And a recent example of a situation in which filibuster was actually eliminated in the Obama administration is appointments. So, uh, Mike Pence broke the confirmation hearing of betsy devos to confirm her she was a very controversial candidate as a secretary of education because people did not believe that she was qualified to oversee the country's public schools as she had expressed frequently um disapproval of our public education system and the need to increase charter schools which is like to each their own belief but I disagree um, as a public school advocate. So Mike Pence broke a tie in the Senate to confirm her to Trump's cabinet, which was interesting because at the time, the Senate was strongly controlled by Republicans. So it's odd that there would be a 50-50 tie, which just signals that she was a very controversial candidate. So the majority of the time, the vice president's duty to preside over the Senate is largely ceremonial. Seen as they don't use their 50-50 tie split very much. And when he is not there, it is given to the president pro tempore a position based on seniority, which is generally, it's not how old a member of the Senate is because, let's face it, they're all ancient. It's how long they have served in the Senate gives them the qualification to be the president pro tempore. As mentioned previously, the Senate has the authority to try impeachment cases and pass judgment by a two-thirds majority vote, which is actually very hard to get in a body like the Senate, which, as I've mentioned before, is becoming increasingly polarized in our day. Impeachment trials do not extend past the removal from office, but only remove the convicted person. But once they are removed, they can be further tried and punished for their crimes. However, Once impeached, it is plausible that, as in the case of Ford pardoning Nixon, the vice president, which comes into power after the president is impeached, can always pardon the president for the crimes they committed, keeping them from jail. This is a fun loophole in the Constitution, which I feel questions the whole um, equal under the law principle of the Constitution that we value, but... When it comes to the president and the vice president and representatives, those lines get increasingly blurry. Moving on to Section 4 of the Constitution, states that congressional elections are to be controlled by state legislatures, but Congress can make or regulat- any regulations except for the location of choosing senators, which seems like a very specific detail. And this is just another example of the Constitution being very specific in some aspects and very, very, very vague in others. And this is because the framers wanted the Constitution to be a living document that could evolve for the times that it was being used because they knew that as a society, obviously, America was going to change. So I just find it funny that they thought that it was very important to put in the Constitution that the location of choosing senators could not be affected by the federal government. This causes a good example of the relationship between Congress and state legislatures, also known as federalism, which is a fun unit in AP Gov because it involves cake, but I never received cake. I just looked at pictures of cake. As metaphors for government, which was less fun, I think that there should be cake. Anyway, Congress gives state legislatures the sole power over state elections, but also they keep the power to overrule almost anything that they do, which is classic Congress. The second clause states that Congress shall meet at least once a year, which is a very, very low bar. I mean, I wish I had a job that I only had to go to once a year. Uh, as a member of Congress, I would definitely only show up once a year. Um, but when you consider the costs and conditions of travel for members of Congress, it becomes a little more reasonable. Also, at this time, there was far less to do in Congress, so less meetings were required. Obviously, riding on horseback from like Virginia was going to be a pain, and I am not a horse person. So that would have been a very troublesome time for me to be an elected civil official. And Congress just didn't have as many things to oversee. Of course, they were setting out the um, building blocks for government, so it was kind of an important time, but they were just, less it was expected of them because over the years, the amount of expectation of the people for the federal government has increased an insane amount. And it's kind of hard to imagine how it was before. But it's fun to think that at one time, they were only expected to meet once a year. Also, at this time, there was less for Congress to do. So, the one day that is determined for Congress to meet is the first Monday in December, oddly specific, unless another day is determined, which it is because I remember unintentional and unimportant information, such as the 20th Amendment, which changed the date to January 3rd, which is close to my birthday. Every th- early in his first year in office, Trump considered changing it to June 14th, which is his birthday, but decided against that. Actually, that was fake news, but you probably would have expected it from him. I I could see reading that and being like, yeah, that seems like something he would think about. You could tell it was fake because there is no way that Trump has read Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution. And he definitely not doesn't know what the 20th Amendment says. Moving on to section five. Sorry, previous side note. You can tell that I have an extreme liberal bias and that's okay because it didn't say in the guidelines that I couldn't randomly rant about things. And I have to fill an hour. So we're going to discuss mm-hmm. section five of the constitution now. And it states that a majority of each house is considered a quorum. Quorum is a very important word in APGov. It requires math. This is just a trigger warning for those of you who are failing math, which is a large amount of my math class. Public education needs to step it up on the whole math game. Okay, it says that a quorum is the number necessary for Congress to get things done, conduct their business. And in the House of Representatives, a majority would be 218. If you're good at dividing things by two, you can figure that out. And 51 in the Senate. Although it may seem like a low bar to expect only half of each house to be president, many representatives and senators are constantly running for reelection and they also need to visit their home states to maintain legal residency. Actually, when we discussed the schedule of senators, it's literally insane because they have a certain amount of days that you have to be in the state to maintain legal residency, as well as you have to stay in touch with your constituency. But there's also a certain amount of days that you need to be in Congress. So it's a very tricky job, and there's a lot of travel involved. Each house can also compel members to come back and punish disorderly members based on their own rules. The Constitution gives um, each house of leeway in constructing their own rules and enforcing them because obviously they were going to change over time as the expectations of congress changed members of congress and this is something that i had no idea about until i read the constitution they can actually be expelled in a two-thirds vote in the house that they serve in In the entirety of the history of Congress, only 20 members of Senate and five members of the House of Representatives have been expelled. It's kind of funny that 20 members of Senate, but only five of the House of Representatives. Um, And that 20 seems like a lot, but when you consider how many members of Congress there are actually, since its creation, it's like an insanely small fraction and it's very rare. There's actually a fun case of this. In one of these expulsions, the decision was reversed after the representative's demise. This is definitely a story where I wish I could do a project on it because it seems like a very interesting tale. What would make them do that? I wish I knew. Section 5 also requires that the House keep a journal of its proceedings, which is very important, and it will be published except for material that the House believes should remain secret is the government hiding things from us i guess we'll never know and we will and the votes of senators and representatives can be entered into the journal with a simple one-fifth vote this holds them accountable to their constituencies for the vote that they cast on the hill which is extremely important because tom tillis could be saying something but actually voting in a completely random way and if we didn't have a way to know how he was voting He could be doing whatever the heck he wanted and we would have no idea. So this is a very important tool for accountability. And having a journal for the proceedings in Congress is extremely important for the media so that they can serve as known as the fourth link of fourth branch of government, as a linkage institution to the people, telling people what is going on in the House of Representatives, because obviously a normal person is not going to be reading. The House Journal or the Senate Journal. Okay, congratulations. We are almost 50% done with the first article of the Constitution. The first five of 10 articles are complete. Don't forget that there's a lot of other articles of the Constitution. Sorry, did I say articles? The first five sections of the first article. You thought we were halfway done with the Constitution. Nope, just the first article. If you're still listening to this podcast, I am vaguely surprised. I kind of expected you to listen to the first 10 minutes and then give me a 100. I feel like I am holding a filibuster because I really want to make it to an hour. There's some government procedural humor here for you as well, including referencing filibuster. Anyway, I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be back after this brief message from our sponsor, which is definitely not also me making a very important recommendation to you, Mr. Z. Okay. Drama. Drama. Did you enjoy political entertainment from shows like SNL in the past, but now find it becoming another source of stress because it reminds you of the desperate fear you feel when you remember who is the leader of the largest military in the world? Do you find yourself in denial, finding that most infuriating saying of many marches, not my president, more and more of healing? Well, we have a solution for you. Just log onto Netflix to steal a friend or your own account, and watch the first four seasons of The West Wing. You can escape your current political reality in Aaron Sorkin's writing, which is fabulous, while watching Allison Janney enact an actually competent press secretary who does her job, no shade, and Bradley Whitford, who plays the chief of staff, keeping his job for more than five minutes, which is funny because he's never replaced by five different people. Besides, watching this show will help you maintain an A in APGov with extremely minimal work ethic, because it references a lot of things that we go over, but it's actually interesting. What are you waiting for? Start watching before Netflix inevitably removes all content they didn't create and then becomes a global superpower. I would vote for Netflix. And now I'm back to bore you with Article 6 of the Constitution, It states that senators and representatives, as public servants, will be paid by the U.S. Treasury. Obviously, they are paid by taxpayer dollars. We know this. The amount they are paid is to be set in a law and can be changed. Obviously, inflation is a thing. They are also able to ignore arrests for treason, felony, and breach of peace when this activity is related to their duties as representatives. This is another callback to our principle of the rule of law, which is blurred when it comes to um, high-ranking officials in government because they are given some privileges that normal citizens don't have, making them sort of not equal under the law, but that's just how our country works. So... This is the const- Yeah. The provision combats the possibility- Ah, sorry. The 6th also ensures that senators and representatives do not take positions in other agencies while serving in their position. This provision combats the possibility of a conflict of interest that could be caused if a senator or representative also worked in a government agency that they could use to their advantage. So, obviously, you can't be- a member of the Veterans Affairs Committee and also be a member of the VA, or you can't be a member of the agency that determines the budget for, sorry, the committee that determines the budget for an agency and also be getting paid for working in that agency because you could increase your own salary, which is an extreme conflict of interest and there's some serious corruption there, so it's very important that this provision in the Constitution prevents that from happening. However, it is common for career politicians to change between being members of Congress, lobbyists, and working in their bureaucratic agencies. So this is called the Iron Triangle, and it is a commonly referenced thing in, by poli majors and Gov students and pretty much nobody else because it sounds like a medieval torture weapon. Um... It's basically saying that members of Congress, after they um, leave that position, they can become lobbyists and use their influence in Congress to get things done for lobbyist groups, and they can also work in bureaucratic agencies. And this is a very common occurrence for career politicians. The Constitution also forbids a member of Congress from serving in both houses at the same time. I find it very unlikely that the American people would elect someone twice for two positions, but that is prevented in the case that anyone wanted to do that. And now we're gonna take a quick break, but we have about three more sections to go, so I'm optimistic. Section 7 of the Constitution, it states that all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives. This is also known as the power of the purse and was very important in the Constitution. It is important that the power of the purse is given to the House of Representatives because, as the lower house, they were more in tune with the people which would check their spending ability because they would be spending the tax dollars of their constituencies and wanted to maintain the public support of their constituencies. So they wouldn't overspend the Senate is given the power to propose or concur spending bills, and in modern times, this rule has become less important as um bills have started to become originate in the Senate but then officially originate in the House. So the lines of this process have become less more blurred, but that was how it was originally set out in the Constitution. The next clause of Article Seven describes the procedure for a veto. After a bill passes through both houses, it comes before this president to sign or veto. A bill can also become a law if the president waits 10 days, except Sundays, without signing it. But if Congress adjourns before those 10 days end, then the bill is sent back to Congress and has to go through the entire legislative process all over again. This is known as a pocket veto. If the president vetoes a piece of legislation, he or she will note his objections to it, and it is then returned to the House from which it originated in and those objections are entered into the journal of that house, as stated in the Constitution to override a presidential veto, both houses have to have a two thirds majority vote. A recent example of Congress overriding a veto was in the Obama administration when they overrode his veto on a bill that would allow the families of 9-11 victims to sue Saudi Arabian government over its alleged support of the terrorists that carried out the attacks. Just because a president signs a bill doesn't necessarily mean that he approves it or all of it. He can issue a signing statement indicating that he intends to ignore or not implement some parts of the bill, which is an extreme power that the president can use when they don't agree with everything that a bill has, or when a bill has small amendments that have been tacked on that the president doesn't want to implement. (laughs) And now we move on to section eight, which is debatably the most important section in the constitution. This section gives Congress its enumerated powers, which are the powers that are explicitly stated in the constitution. I'm not going to delve into the history of every single enumerated power because that would take me over an hour. But as I'm going to talk about some of the more relevant ones, the first section gives power, um, gives the authority to Congress to have the power to tax all states, which is extremely important because under the Articles of Confederation, the federal government didn't have any power because they didn't have the funds because they didn't have the power to tax the states. So they basically were a completely feudal government because without funds a government is basically basically powerless a great example is it was kind of like that branch of Panera that allowed its customers to pay what they thought their food was worth which is inevitably it went out of business because both Panera and the federal government are undervalued by the majority of people I like Panera Congress is also given the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. In case you were having a nice day, I thought I'd remind you that the America that America is currently $22 trillion in debt. So I decided to look up a, a comparison and to play with the numbers that's only a couple trillion less number of cells in the average human body. You remember what a cell is, right? Okay, we're good. Congress is also given the power to regulate interstate commerce, also known as the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause is used for a lot of congressional power, which sometimes is thinly linked to the actual regulation of commerce. In the case of U.S. v. Lopez, the Supreme Court ruled that Congress's use of the Commerce Clause to ban guns near schools was unconstitutional, as it didn't really pertain to the regulation of commerce. I think their logic was like, Without guns near schools, students would receive a safer and better education, and it would make schools better, and people who are better educated would get better jobs, and then that would somehow affect the economy. It was an extreme stretch, and I kind of can't believe that they tried to do that. Um, But before then, the Commerce Clause had been used to do a lot of things that it couldn't really be explained well that why it was able to do that. So, Congress is also given the power to establish lower federal courts, also known as district courts, and the 11 circuit courts in the Court of Appeals, but there are also two extra courts of appeals, the D.C. Court of Appeals and the Federal Court of Appeals. So, if anyone ever asks you how many courts of appeals there are, there are three right answers, and you should by all means give all of them. Congress is also given the power to declare war, but this power ends up actually being shared with the president because as commander-in-chief, they have the authority to send troops into military conflict abroad. Actually, the last time Congress declared war was, and you're not going to expect this, against Japan after Pearl Harbor, which was a long time ago. If you're bad at history, which I know you're not because you're teaching me history, we fought wars in Korea, Vietnam, the Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, and Iraq after that, But the federal government just started calling them conflicts, which is some serious rebranding. For example, throughout the entire Vietnam War, war was never actually declared by Congress, which is crazy. Congress is also given the power to raise and maintain an army and navy. Remember, they obviously didn't have an air force yet. The founders were very skeptical of standing armies as they had recently lived through forced occupation by British military and therefore saw armies in times of peace as an oppression of their freedom, but they kind of had to get over that. Congress also has the power to call upon militias from states to execute the laws of the Union. Militias, you probably think of the Second Amendment, which was used, um, justified to give militias the power to have weapons, but has Taken on a broader meaning as now everyone gets to have AK-47s. You know, more of my liberal bias coming in. But the training and appointment of militias is left to the stage, which is another example of federalism. Militias were somewhat like today's National Guard, but it's not perfect comparison. Other duties of Congress that I won't elaborate on completely are the powers to punish counterfeiters, which is nifty. You know, James Bond. I don't know. He didn't actually counterfeit things. I'm thinking of Neil Caffrey, which is in white collar. You should watch more Netflix. Establish a post office, which of course is important because how else would I send the frequent letters? Oof. Promote sciences and useful art, which is a contentious issue because some people believe that all art is useful and some people believe that art is stupid and terrible. Um, They also can create copyrights, which is actually really important in fostering scientific advantage and artistic advantage, advancement, because without a copyright, what's the incentive to invent something that everyone will just use for free? They also create consistent rules for naturalization and bankruptcy, purchase land, and, most importantly, they have the power to punish pirates, explicitly in the Constitution. The most important clause comes at the end of Article 8 and states that Congress has the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and of powers vested in this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any independent of officer thereof. This is known as the necessary and proper clause because it gives Congress the authority to use implied powers necessary for their enumerated powers. It is also known as the Elastic Clause, because it sort of stretches to allow Congress the power to do things that may not explicitly be stated for them to do, but are extremely necessary for them to do. So you can kind of imagine a rubber band stretching around all of the growing powers of Congress throughout history. For example, in the Supreme Court case of McCullough v. Maryland, which is very important if you're taking a peek up, the Supreme Court decided, among other things, that the under the Elastic Clause, Congress had the authority to create a federal bank in Maryland, even though it was not an enumerated power in the Constitution, because it was necessary to execute Congress's powers to regulate commerce. Joining us now is the Precinct Vice Chair and also my father to talk about um, current events going on in the legislative branch of government.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so we're going to start out with the hearings that are all over the news right now going on in the House of Representatives to discuss possible um, legal actions going on in or have, that have gone on in the Trump administration.
1: Yeah, so there's a, there are many uh, oversight hearings now that we have uh, democratic control of the House of Representatives. And um, there, there seem like there are a ton of them, and that seems to be, I think, for two reasons. One is that um, over the last two years, there were a lot of things that happened that normally there would be some hearings about but um, because the house was controlled by republicans and they really um, have been very closely or very supportive of donald trump they didn't even hold hearings about a lot of controversial issues so there's sort of a backlog of things to look into Um, but beyond just making up for lost time there has been Uh, abnormally high um you know level of controversial actions under this administration and and that continues to occur so the oversight committees uh the oversight committee and and all all of the committees like the judiciary committee um have just been super busy lately and it looks like they're gonna uh be busy for quite some time, um, hmm. covering both that backlog and, and, and a lot of continuing kind of controversies.
0: So what is the purpose of these hearings? Like, what is the goal that they want to accomplish?
1: So, yeah, you know, what the Democrats would say is it's their constitutional obligation to provide oversight. So it's really a matter of the che- the checks and balances that are part of the Constitution, and the need for the Congress to, um, you know, monitor what's happening in the executive branch. Um, so, I-, I think it's you know just a, uh, you know, in many ways it's a matter of uh, business as usual. Of the Congress is supposed to make sure that the executive branch is executing. Uh, the policies um, you know a, as they should be um, but I think there are also you know there's a lot of political motives as well in order to try to um, highlight some things that are um, you know are not you uh, um, Beneficial to the Trump administration as we start to look at what's going to happen in 2020 and how can the Democrats bring to light and sort of have a constant drumbeat of uh, things to to have the public look look at that um, will help their uh, party seem like they're uh, you know better for the country overall.
0: That's interesting because. Um, Oversight Committees, it's not explicitly expounded on in the actual print of the Constitution, so it's a great example of the implied powers and of the constitutional principle of separation of powers that provides for checks and balances in the federal government so that no one branch of government has too much power. But we were talking earlier about how uh, the legislative branch is actually over history, given up some of its powers to the other two branches. Um, Can you expand on that more?
1: Yeah. One of the biggest things that um, we've seen over my lifetime, at least, is um, the power to um, decide when we are at war. Um, And one of the big things that Congress did after 9-11 was pass a very wide-ranging authorization for the use of military force that has been used um, to take our military into countries that I think at the time the Congress might never have imagined we would be going into. Um, So this was uh, originally intended to be used for what was called the global war on terror. That term's not so popular these days, but <laughs> um, it's been used to, um, uh, as the um, foundation for us having troops in, um, in Africa, and in, um, you know, in Mali, um, where even members of Congress um, were unaware last year that we had troops there um, and, and, uh, several of the troops were killed in, a, uh, in a, uh, ambush scenario. Oh, I
0: remember so, reading about yeah, that.
1: Yeah. So it's like this, you know, normally we would, the Congress would have more, you know, oversight again into what's happening with the military forces. And when they're in, you know, these, these types of dangerous environments, but, um, this, power is one of the things that I would say that Congress has really kind of offloaded to the executive branch. Um, and, and when there are situations where there's, um, you know, even outside of the realm of terrorism, where there's the potential for the use of military force, the Congress has generally just uh, allowed the president to make the decision um, there was a situation on, on when Obama was president where there was consideration of taking military action in Syria, and he wanted the Congress to take a vote on the issue. And basically, they um, decided not to, not to engage. And mm. so it's, it was yet again the Congress saying, we, We're not going to get involved. And that's a, you know, it's, a, it's safe for them because if, if something goes horribly wrong, um, in one of these engagements then they can't take the blame. Yeah, you know, so it after 9-11 It was very popular to go to war. So that was kind of a relatively easy vote for um, many people but other situations can be more uh, More difficult and they've just had a hands-off um, Approach to it.
0: That's really interesting. I think we um, discussed that piece of legislation, that made it easier for the president to send troops overseas um, in my gov class. So tying back to education. <laughs> um, but also, another thing that I wanted to cover was the um, legislation in the House that was passed by the House and the Senate. And then, I assume, vetoed by Trump um, against his national emergency. Uh,
1: that actually just happened today. So it passed, it passed the House um, about two weeks ago. And it was, it's an interesting um, law, um, this national emergency law, because um, when it passed the House, um, unlike other things that the House might pass, the Senate was required to bring it to a vote. Um, so normally, like the House recently passed a, um, a background checks bill uh, yeah. for guns, but the Senate majority leader Mitch McConnell has said he's not going to bring that to a vote or or it seems unlikely that he, I'm not sure he said it it seems unlikely he'll bring it up for a vote but with this vote about the national emergency he was required by the law to bring it up for a vote it's it's called a privileged resolution um, and so today they had the vote in the Senate and a surprising number of Republicans voted to um in favor of this resolution, which was to end, um, stop the declaration of a national emergency.
0: So I was speculating with Mr. McDonald actually earlier about this, and he thought that if enough Republicans in the Senate were to be on board with this piece of legislation, it would be um, one of the last nails in Trump's coffin. But I was kind of skeptical of that perspective because I feel like once Trump vetoes it, It's obviously not going to be able to get a two-thirds majority in both houses, and seems to me to be like a show of how strong Trump is in being able to deny them Congress the ability to do this. So what kind of political message do you think this piece of legislation is going to show, and what effects will that have?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because the Senate has been... um... Uh, very unwilling to break with Donald Trump, um, and he's um, did push for them to vote against this resolution. Um, and it looked like only a few were going to vote against the resolution. Um, I'm sorry, for the res- few Republicans would vote for the re- resolution, maybe up four or five. But when it went to twelve, I think that does send a message that. Um, they're a little bit more willing to be independent on some issues, but I think their independence here has more to do with their recognition as senators that um, the situ- the tables will turn and um, they're more concerned about what would happen if a... Um, Democrat was in the White House, and was able to do the same mm-hmm. thing, and so there they see the, the You know the negative consequences of that this the Senate um, Does do some things that are a little bit longer term focused, like for instance they have yet to get rid of the filibuster um,
0: I thought that they um, eliminated the filibuster during the Obama administration in um, nominations. They
1: did. All, they did for um, on the judicial side. They did for um, judges up to the Supreme Court, but not for the Supreme Court. Oh. And then under Trump, they got rid of it uh, they, for the Supreme Court, but, but for general legislation other than. Um, a special kind of bills called reconciliation bills, um, you still have that need to get 60 votes in yeah. order to, to move it forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, what I'm saying is the Senate, you know, they, they do think about like what's going to happen when the other side's in power um, and that's why they've kept the filibuster. So I think this is an example of them thinking, again, what might happen if there was a Democratic President, the net effect of this, though, is this whole thing is tied up in the courts anyway. So um, no matter what the how they vote, whether he vetoes, whether they um, well, if they override, it would end it. But uh, assuming they don't override, it's still going to be in the courts, probably through all of Trump's presidency.
0: That makes sense, and um, I feel like one of the most scary prospects of the Trump presidency to most liberal people is the um, nominations that he's able to secure to the Supreme Court, which would then lead to um, eventually ruling on this national emergency. What is your perspective on the possibility that um, Kavanaugh might be like beholden to President Trump as many people suspect and might vote for um, allowing this state of national emergency?
1: Yeah, I don't think we know. Supreme Court um nominations um and, and the effects are like notoriously surprising. Like people get nominated and everybody thinks they're gonna do one thing but then they don't. Like so most recently um Chief Justice Roberts um was the vote that wound up basically maintaining the bulk of Obamacare, uh. and so it was expected that when Obamacare went to the Supreme Court that uh, he would, there, there there, was this whole issue about whether something was a tax, and how his, uh, I don't recall exactly the details, but in any case, a lot of conservatives were very upset that he went that way, so I don't think I think there is something about uh, getting on the Supreme Court um, and having that lifetime appointment that um, may free some people from uh, whatever, you know, things that uh, political things they may have done to get up to that point. And I'm not saying the court isn't political. I think it is. But um, uh, I just say it's unpredictable how he's going to go at this Um. point.
0: And the last thing I wanted to talk about was the recent story of um, Nancy Pelosi, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> crazily waving around my hands, remembering her name, um, who um, denounced the many Democratic representatives' efforts to stoke a campaign for starting the impeachment process for Donald Trump. What is your perspective on her statements um against the impeachment process.
1: Yeah, she she's saying that it we should wait um for that process. Um she's not necessarily saying it shouldn't happen, but she doesn't want it to be the focus. I, I think she's being smart. I think um there there are many things uh that the Democratic House uh, Wants to accomplish, and they want to try to keep the attention on more positive things um, that they're they're trying to get done. And I think politically, that's smart. Um, I also think her point about you have to get all the evidence together, and we haven't seen all the evidence. It makes sense, um, and also that it's a pointless exercise to some degree. I mean, it it, it would make us. Uh, on the Democratic side, potentially feel good to pass uh, uh, articles of impeachment through the House, just like um, was done against Bill Clinton. But if you don't have support from Republicans, it's just going to fail in the Senate. You may feel like you did the right thing, um, but you spent a lot of energy and it didn't um, accomplish anything. Yes, somewhat of an
0: empty gesture.
1: Yeah. I do think, though, that she there could be like an interesting situation here because i believe that donald trump is the best uh republican for the democrats to run against in 2020 i think he motivates um, democrats in a way that we have not seen in a very long time Mm. Um, we had uh, record turnouts in this midterm election that we hadn't seen in a hundred years um so i think uh it's maybe to our advantage that he remain the nominee. Um, And and to some degree, I think um, in the not too distant future, Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell may sort of wish that um, the House would go through with an impeachment process so that uh, Republicans would not um, be so tied to Donald Trump. We're not at that point yet, but I think as more uh, of these Uh, investigations go through that we talked about at the beginning, and um, more evidence comes out from some of the um, uh, criminal proceedings that are going on, um, that uh, Republicans may wish that Nancy Pelosi had been more aggressive about starting impeachment. So we'll Hmm. see.
0: (laughs) That's funny. I was thinking um, just now, because Donald Trump is seen by many as the reactionary Republican candidate to president obama but if we run against um president trump we may have an even more reactionary democratic candidate and the polarization continues and continues Uh,
1: uh, yeah i think that's very possible
0: we'll see what happens stay with us bye thanks for listening to an hour of linkage the podcast that links people to government I know that I didn't get to every single section of Article 1 of the Constitution, which just goes to show how important it is and how much material there is to cover in just Article 1 of the very long document that is the Constitution. I would love to do more episodes of Linkage if this was another upcoming possible Gov project. I think it was actually really fun and really informative, and I learned a lot about how to tie the Constitution to current events and historical events that have gone on with government. So I would highly recommend this project to anyone else that wanted to do it. A couple of housekeeping details. Details. Earlier I said possibly that the age to be a senator was 35. It's definitely 30, I Googled it later. You've always gotta fact check your information even when it's from something that you misremembered from the constitution. So, anyway, moving on, thanks for listening to us. I hope that you learned stuff about Article 1 of the Constitution and will now be prepared to take and get a 3 or above on the AP Final Exam, which would be great because that would give Mr. Z a bonus at the end of the year. Stay in there, stay connected to government, read more of the Constitution. Bye, peace out.